Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. I found a summary of this uh, article, uh, but then uh, uh, sought out the long version. The long version is absolutely terrific. Um, it's on Barry Weiss's Substack uh, by Abigail Schreier, who's written a couple of books about transgender issues and that sort of thing, and has been painted as a transphobe and a hater and the rest of it. Well, she writes the books, and they're very popular and well-regarded, but they're not sold on Amazon. Right. Even though all she's asking is for data and responsibility and restraint and suggested that the whole transgender thing uh, in terms of uh, treating children has gotten out of control. Well, here's what she writes, and, and there's a punchline coming, and it's a big one. For nearly a decade, the vanguard of the transgender rights movement, doctors, activists, celebrities, transgender influencers, has defined the boundaries of the new orthodoxy surrounding transgender medical care. What's true? What's false? Which questions can and cannot be asked? They said it was perfectly safe to give children as young as nine puberty blockers and insisted that the effects of those blockers were fully reversible. They'd said it was an, uh, the job of medical professionals to help minors to transition. They said it was not their job to question the wisdom of transitioning and that anyone who did, including parents, was probably transphobic. They said any worries about a social conti- a contagion among teen girls was nonsense. And they never said anything about the distinct possibility that blocking puberty coupled with cross-sex hormones could inhibit a normal sex life. And then they talk about, uh, she talks about their allies in media and the Hollywood who, who repeated the orthodoxy and anyone who dared disagree or depart from any of the core tenets, including, by the way, young women who publicly detransitioned. Even they were inevitably smeared as hateful and accused of harming young children. But the new orthodoxy has gone too far, according to two of the most prominent providers in the field of transgender medicine. Dr. Marcy Bowers, world-renowned surgeon specialist, and Erica Anderson, clinical psychologist at the University of California, San Francisco's Child and Adolescent Gender Clinic. Now, here's the punchline. In the course of their careers, both have seen thousands of patients. Both are board members of the World Professional Association for Transgender the organization that sets standards, and both are transgender women. Earlier this month, Anderson told me she submitted a co-authored op-ed to the New York Times warning that many transgender healthcare providers were treating kids recklessly. Oh, boy. The Times passed, explaining it's outside our coverage policies and priorities right now. Over the past few weeks, I've spoken at length to both women about the current direction of their field and, and where they feel it has gone wrong. Uh, on some issues, including their stance on puberty blockers, they raise concerns that appear to question the current health guidelines uh, set by that uh, the, that organization I told you about. Um, for instance, WPATH, WPATH, recommends that for many transgender, dysphoric, and gender nonconforming kids, hormonal puberty suppression begins at the earliest stages of pu- puberty. They've insisted since 2012 that puberty blockers are fully reversible interventions. When I asked Anderson if she believes that psychological effects of puberty blockers are reversible, she said, I'm not sure. When asked whether children in the early stages of puberty should be put on blockers, Bowers said, I am not a fan. When I asked Bowers if she still thought puberty blockers were a good idea from a surgical perspective, she said, this is typical of medicine. We zig and then we zag. And I think maybe we zigged a little too far left in some cases. I think there was naivete on the part of the pediatric endocrinologists who are proponents of early puberty blocking think that this magic, that this magic can happen, that surgeons can do anything. 
I asked Bowers whether she believed WPATH had been welcoming to a wide variety of doctors' viewpoints, including those concerned about risks, skeptical of puberty blockers, and maybe even critical of some of the surgical procedures. Quote, there are definitely people who are trying to keep out anyone who doesn't absolutely buy the party line that everything should be affirming and that there's no room for dissent. I think that's a mistake. It is almost without doubt, I think, that we're going to look back on this period like other periods in history we look back on and we think, how the hell did that happen? How did that craze catch on? Uh, We're going to look back on this period of time when we were doing this to little kids and think, what the hell? You're absolutely right. This will be seen as a, a dark, dark age of abusing children. In my opinion, with all due respect to those uh, adults who decide to go ahead and do this, it's your it's your decision. It's up to you. It's your life. Go live it. And I wish you nothing but health and happiness. But to do this to children, since nearly seven in ten children initially diagnosed with gender dysphoria eventually outgrow it or go on to become lesbian or gay adults, the conventional wisdom held that with a little patience, most kids would come to accept their bodies. The underlying assumption was that children didn't always know best. But over the last decade, watchful waiting has been supplanted by affirmative care, which assumes children do know best, and they ought to go ahead and authorize mutilating surgery on themselves. You know, my I got I got a kid that's got uh, all kinds of um, um, issues that he's dealing with and we're trying to deal with. I guarantee you, and he's trying to figure out, you know, a way to be happy. I guarantee you that if I'd have wanted to, started a couple of years ago, I could have convinced him, hey, here's what your problem is. You're actually a woman. Let's get this done. Yeah. And everything will be good. I know I could have convinced him of that if I wanted to do that. And you got parents doing that. And, you know, another aspect of this that I think is ironic and awful is, and, and it was referred to in that last paragraph that many go on to be lesbian or gay adults. You have a kid, a child, thinking, I don't feel like a boy, meaning like the other boys, or like I perceive a boy should feel. And then he gets put on the all-too-fast-moving conveyor belt of transgender mania, and all of a sudden, instead of realizing, oh, I'm an effeminate boy, I will be an effeminate man, I'm attracted to men. Instead of that... Adults whisk him along and say, we need to, we need to carve up your body. We need to change. You're not a man. You're a woman, which is a weird and somewhat ironic insistence that there can't be girlish men, effeminate men, right. effeminate gay men. What are you talking about? I thought you people were like pro gay rights. And now anybody who dares express that they're an effeminate man, you want to carve them up? I'm uh, maybe this will happen over time because probably politically it's been difficult to do, but I'm surprised there's not more of a movement among, you know, the more effeminate end of gay men to say, hold on, wait a second. Yeah, you're right. You're right. By the way, the uh, use of puberty blockers can be traced to the Netherlands in the 90s. This uh, they cite this Peggy Cohen Katenis, a uh, psychologist in Amsterdam who helped to raise awareness about the potential benefits of blockers and pharmaceutical companies happy to fund studies and what's called the Dutch Protocol was born. The thinking was, why make a child who suffered with gender dysphoria since preschool endure puberty with all its discomforts and embarrassments if that child were likely to transition as a young adult? Researchers believed blockers' effects were reversible just in case the kid did not ultimately transition. Oh, boy. 
But this very psychologist later grew doubtful about that initial assessment. Quote, it is not clear yet how pubertal suppression will influence brain development, she wrote in 06. Well, at least the experiments were only on children that will affect them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah. This is unbelievable. You know, Dr. Savage often said uh, liberalism is a mental disorder. I think your hardcore progressive type these days who wants a suspension of the First Amendment, they want to to, to whisk kids along on this surgery conveyor belt. Um, I could listen list half a dozen other issues. I think they actually are troubled. They are delusional to the point that it's, it's a neurosis, at least. It is a mental disorder. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. I forewarned you. Let's go, Brandon. The Armstrong and Getty Show. So from the kids don't do this at home department, a man has died after chugging a 1.5 liter bottle of Coca-Cola in 10 minutes. The fizzy fiasco occurred. Hmm. Regrettable. How do we feel about that? Hmm. Not good. After the 20-year-old rapidly downed a 1.5-liter bottle of Coke to stay hydrated during hot weather. He's hot and thirsty. He comes across a liter and a half bottle of Coke and drinks the whole thing down. Six hours later, he started to experience a swollen stomach, a swollen stomach and severe pain, which sent him to the hospital where he died. Elevated heart rate, low blood pressure, rapid breathing. And they think uh, it was swigging down the Coke? Aberrant levels in his intestinal wall and portal vein that provides blood to the liver. All kinds of different things happen. Yeah, that's what they think happened. Uh, a shock liver, which I'd never heard of, which is caused by a lack of oxygen to the organ. Shock oh. liver can happen. and uh, It's called uh, hepatabic sesima, is what it's called. Is it? <laughs> anyway, so don't do that. God, that makes my stomach hurt just thinking about it. You got to let it go, buddy. You got to go ahead and belch. And swigging down a liter and a half or oh. whatever it was. I mean, you'd really oh have to. God. It'd be thunderous. It'd be like a roaring lion. But you, you got to do it. Otherwise, you're going to get the uh, liver hashimoto. The Right. Shock liver. You don't want shock liver. Ask for it by name. Hey, if you're yeah. thirsty, try some uh, water. <laughs> try that. Liter and a half. Oh God, that just makes me ah oh oh the pain I feel in my stomach. Well, it's enough to kill you. He's twenty-two. Yeah. Don't do that at home, Don't, kids. No, it's terrible. No, one of those TikTok challenges. Uh, kids and their TikTok. Am I wrong? <laughs> oh, my kid took the TikTok off her uh, phone. Why? She said it's too easy to waste time. It's a, it's really? a, well, because there was a lot of creativity, a lot of really funny, interesting videos. They're all very short and it's like the YouTube vortex, but worse. Yeah. That's see, that's the problem that, uh, whenever that tipping point happened a few years back, if you're old enough, you remember there was actually a lack of good TV shows and good music and, you know, entertaining things to look at. There were, there, there weren't enough. Mm-hmm. You're always seeking them out. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like when I uh, finally had enough money that I could eat as much as I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't, you know, you gotta you gotta dial it back at some point and realize, okay, now I can eat more, but I shouldn't eat more. <laughs> Is that way with entertainment? It doesn't matter. Yes, it's all brilliant, but it doesn't matter if it's all brilliant. 
if you spend your whole life looking at videos. I'm right. t- Figure t- out how much you want to eat. I'm talking to myself here. If the music's brilliant, the videos are, the TV shows, and I, when I hear it's a great show, you got to see it. I know there's plenty of really great TV shows, but is that the what I want to do with my time? That's the question. Yeah. And that's a hard one for everybody. My son started playing, finally let him play Fortnite. He's been wanting to play Fortnite for years. And, uh, the, the common sense media people think around 11, 12, his age is about as young as you ought to go on the thing. And he's, he's 11 and a half. So I let him play it. He's got friends that have been playing it for years, but what are you doing in that one? Are you shooting people? Are you fighting monsters? Killing people. Oh, boy. Trying to get away with stuff. Oh, boy. It's not bloody. It's, you know, cartoon violence. Mm. As opposed to like, um, uh, your, um, your military stuff where it's just flat out violence, violence. Yeah. But anyway, man, he, uh, you know, it's going to take some serious regulation of how much he's allowed to play it. You're nodding your head. Have you played Fortnite, Michael? You Fortnite guy? Uh, my nephews are big yeah. time. Yeah. Fortnite. Oh, oh man. I, they I love it. You know, and a good example on Saturday night, usually on Saturday nights, we, we watch TV together, but he just got the Fortnite downloaded on his, uh, his uh, Nintendo Switch. And I let him play it that night, and he was online with his best friends and playing and stuff like that. So instead of him and I hanging out, doing our thing on a Saturday night, he was alone in his bedroom playing a video game with his friends. And, uh, you know, um, mm. uh, but he could have played all night long easily. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. I took it away from him at like 1030. I said, I'm going to plug this in in my room so you're not tempted. To, uh, to play it, but I mean, he's full on, like, wide eyed. First thing he talked about in the morning. The, the, are video games addictive or not question? You know, I don't, I don't know technically what's an addiction or, or not in those lines, but man, man, if it's, if you, if you, if somebody has to take it away from you to get you to stop and it's the first thing you think of in the morning, certainly in that territory yeah i don't anybody who argues that they're not is is making a rhetorical uh, is turning it into a rhetorical exercise they're making lawyerly arguments anybody who's ever witnessed kids with video games or adults for that matter knows it is or if anybody's ever felt it themselves in the the need to go check the latest tiktok or the twitter or whatever what what do you think's compelling you to do that yeah. The last 10 times you did it, did you come away from it thinking that was a good expenditure of your time? That's the main thing with an addiction, is if after you do it, you think, I'm not doing that again, and then you do. That's that's really number one for me hmm. um, on whether or not it's an addiction or not. Uh, if you get done doing something and you think, that was great, I can't wait to do it again, well, then, I don't know. I suppose there are crackheads like that or meth heads. You come off a three-day bender and think, that was awesome, I'm going to do that again. <laughs> it can oh, still boy. be an addiction, that's my point. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a decent, uh, decent definition. I'm doing that too much. I'm not going to do it again. And then you do it again. Yeah, yeah. I think kids, though, they want to play the video games constantly. Sure. There's no regret. They're just that they're drawn to it. They need it. And he's playing with his friends. I mean, how appealing is that? Would would I have done the same thing when I was his age if it existed? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So I need a life hack if anybody's got one. Maybe if we've got a thief listening, a thief would probably have a good answer for this. Or maybe you work at a store and you know. So I'm wearing this dress shirt. I don't know if I can get this out of my suit jacket so that you can see the little gray thing that keeps you from stealing your shirt. Oh, man. That's supposed to make it beep when you walk out the door. Yeah, the security device thing. I paid for the shirt. I'm not in the habit of stealing clothes. But I bought the shirt and somehow they missed taking the little plastic thing off the sleeve. And uh, how do you get it off? Have you ever tried? I did one time, 
and it with a lot of work, and there is serious danger of cutting yourself because there's a lot of sharp things involved, and then ink squirted all over the place. Right, right. It, it, it ruins the garment. Yeah. So does anybody know? I think you go back a, to the store and tell it, them, hey, you guys left this on. I don't think I got the receipt, though. I'm going to have to prove I didn't steal it. I don't think so. You don't think? I don't look like a no. thief? No, I got not the really. eyes. You got the suit going. I got please. the slump shoulders. I look, I look like a thief. Um, is there a life hack for getting those things off? They got that piece of equipment, or can you buy that piece of equipment? Surely that that's. Do thieves? Wait a minute. Do thieves own those little things? You just slide on there, and it makes them come off. Well, I'm reminded of the shoplifting rings that are running rampant in Cal Unicornia, where they've decriminalized crime, and and they're stealing, you know, purses, uh, dresses, clothes, jackets by the rack. That's so. Yeah, they've got to have a way to deal with that. That's a good point. They must have a way to get these off. If you know, text line four one five two nine five KFTC four one five two nine five KFTC, and that reminds me, because so many people steal so much now from all your uh, like uh, CVS's, Walgreens, those kinds of places. Every damn thing you want to buy is behind lock and key, so you have to find an employee to buy the cheapest dang thing. Right. I I remind you of that email we got the other day from a guy who lived in South Africa in the early 2000s, third world country, dangerous, lots and lots of crime. You had to be buzzed into every store, including like a barbershop. We are permitting America to become a third world country. It's it's in front of you. Armstrong and Getty. From the Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. And now, here's Armstrong and Getty. So one final note on the uh, the Janet Yellen-endorsed plan that the feds get to root around in your bank account if you have any transaction of $600 or more, which is just insane. There ought to be revolution in the streets over this. The Nebraska state treasurer, whose name is John Morante, said in a statement released last month, and quite a few uh, fairly high-level politicians have commented on this, quote, this could lead to a tremendous invasion of privacy, the likes of which our country has never seen. Millions of law-abiding Americans would suddenly have their bank accounts open to federal investigators for no more reason than buying a refrigerator. This is simply unconscionable. To make matters worse under this proposal, saving for college could put an American family on the IRS's radar. Costs that will likely be passed on to the public. Because it used to be you needed a a, uh, a warrant to root around in people's bank accounts. Sure. There, the problem is there are too many people, and I wouldn't be surprised if you put this to a vote, if it might not be, might not be a, a majority or a, a poll. A majority of people have the idea of, I'm not doing anything wrong, so I'm not worried about it, so what difference does it make? Which is just a backwards way of looking at it. Why would you let someone else look at your finances? Would you let your neighbor, your boss? What if your boss said, "Yeah, I want to see, I want to see your bank records. I just want to know what you spend your money on." You'd say, "No freaking way." Well, then don't let the government do it either. Well, right, right. Imagine a, a cop stops you on the street, says, "How much money are you carrying? What are you going to do with it?" What are you going to buy from home? You know, and it could happen every day of your life. 
Getting back to this Nebraska state treasurer, he said, my message is really simple. The people of Nebraska entrusted me to protect the privacy of these accounts, and I am not going to comply with this. If the Biden administration sues me, we will take it all the way to the Supreme Court. We are going to fight every step of the way. Good for him. Good for him. Wow, these these are crazy times. Yeah. I mean, between the, the spending and the control and the intrusions and the, you know, uh, Merrick Garland saying the FBI was going to look into what could be domestic terrorism, people yelling at school board meetings, and we're going to bring the weight of the federal government down on that. Come on. Got to ask for ketchup packets now. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Senator, Senator Scott Wilk, I'm guessing a Republican of Santa Clarita said, why was making local government the ketchup packet police a priority? That's a decent question. Yeah, that is a good question. People have no, I mean, these these stories fit together. People have no concept of it anymore of the role of government. The government is not supposed to do all this stuff. Right, right. Yeah, a country founded on the, the idea of limited government and self-governance has now completely lost that thread. Which is uh, highly disappointing, at least. I mean, and, you know, we, we, we try here, and there are others like us who try, but, man, the masses of Americans, I wonder, somebody ought to just Gallup ought to do this. Uh, just ask the question, why do we have a government, or what should the government be doing? Make and me just, happy. And just They're have, supposed to make me happy. Right. And have people fill in a blank or, you know, write a, a couple of sentences, then do one of those word clouds and figure out what people actually think. The government is there, by the way, to protect your liberty. That's why it exists right there in the founding documents. It's not to take other people's money and give it to you. It's not to make you happy. It's not to root through your your bank account nor your underwear drawer. I'm guessing for a large chunk of human history, men took sex whenever they wanted it from women, and there was no society or civilization to really stop that from happening. Then, at a certain point, we became civilized enough, and for a long chunk of more recent history, there was a bit of a bargain going on that this is all based on the idea that men uh, are much, much more driven to have sex than women are, is my theory. Maybe some of you don't agree with that, but. Um, well, I would I would say it's like all primates. Yeah. The men have to be ready to mate at any time. The the fem the males rather the females have a completely different reproductive rhythm. And for a lot of uh, recent civilization, that was a power women had over men, and they could kind of bargain in a certain way for getting a certain kind of man who would treat them a certain way for the opportunity to have sex with them. You know, I just some saw some commitment, this, uh... some treatment, some 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 thing. Just saw a uh, meme the other day. I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, men are like linoleum tile. If you lay them right at the beginning, you can walk all over them for 30 years. Wow. That was funny. <laughs> Hurtful and accurate. Um, <laughs> and then at some point, a certain kind of feminist came to believe that, no, we can have sex with whoever we want, whenever we want, just like men. And women, some women, or a lot of women, bought into the idea, yeah, that empowers us. And I cool. think the reaction of most men was, all right, awesome, cool. Then I don't have to treat you a certain way or commit to anything, and I get to have sex. Fantastic. And it would seem that a bunch of women have figured this out and say, wait a second, what's going on here? 
based on a couple of books that are out. One is a, a novel that was written by Sally Rooney. I don't know if you know her work, but she's written a couple of huge bestsellers about millennials and uh, their lives starting when they're like in high school and then college. And now they're a little bit older in this latest novel. And I thought uh, some interesting things in here, some spoilers, if you're going to read the book. The characters, same characters through all the books. It's like reading Harry Potter. Uh, the characters trade in showy declarations of Marxism for a quieter search for meaning. They're deeply curious about religion. Casual sex is critiqued. Commitment holds the most allure. A church wedding is the setting for one of the book's most transcendent moments. A baby even appears. Um, so that was a change and, uh, and, um, the idea that the people have given up on that, the characters in her book, but are actually happier that way. Um, yeah. Mm hmm. <laughs> which is not shocking to a lot of us, but, and, and she wrote that from her, that's the way she evaluates where society is going. So then I came across this, a nonfiction, uh, column in the New York Times by Michelle Goldberg, who I believed I, called an idiot last week. Uh, she wrote a pretty good column over the weekend, Why Sex-Positive Feminism is Falling Out of Fashion. That's the idea from some feminists that, hey, we get to have sex with whoever we want, whenever we want, too. And some women are saying, well, I'll just read from the article, quoting a, um, a college professor here. The warnings of the anti-porn feminists seem to have been belatedly realized by many of my students. Sex for my students is what porn says it is, writes this one professor. In other words, women saying, hey, why is porn getting to dictate what my sex life is going to be. Wow. So instead of trying to please their partner, they're just trying to recreate porn scenes. Right. Interesting. These Gen Z women think sex positivity is overrated, one 23-year-old woman said. It feels like we are tricked into exploiting ourselves. Yeah, that, I think that's exactly right. That's what I thought as I started learning more about whole, the whole hookup culture thing. I thought, okay, this is cool on my end, but I don't understand what you get out of it. Um <laughs> Uh, using new terms for what sounds like old proclivities, the word demisexual, demisexual, which I think I mocked a couple of weeks ago because I didn't fully understand what it meant. I thought it was yet another, you know, of this 57 different kinds of orientations. Sure. Uh, the word demisexual refers to those attracted only to people with whom they share an emotional connection. Well, that's crazy. Before the sexual revolution, of course, many people thought that's what most women were like, because they were. Now an aversion to casual sex has become a bona fide sexual orientation. Demisexuals only have sex with people they have feelings for, or who have feelings for them. Seems right. like a pretty good idea. Well, and I don't think it needs to be 100% one or the other. If a woman, a young woman, wants to have a less than fully committed sexual encounter, you know, that's fine. But the idea that, yeah, I'm a slut. I'll lay any guy who looks at me. I'll No problem. This is great. This is wonderful. No, that is not the way to satisfy your soul. Well, it's not and working out. I think out. women are figuring that out. It's not working out relationship-wise for the men or the women. In March, Vox's Rebecca Jennings reported on the spread of the cancel porn movement in TikTok. It's just one facet of conservatism, for lack of a better term, that's proliferating on TikTok from rather unlikely sources, she wrote. Young, presumably progressive women who think that what's sometimes called choice feminism caters to patriarchy and male gaze. I think, yeah, I think women... uh um, embracing the whole we're sluts and we're proud of it thing was really catering to what men want and getting nothing in return. Well, yeah, and it's the second part that concerns me, especially as the dad of daughters, that I don't care if men are happy or not per se. I care about whether my daughters are happy and have lives that are, are, are good for them, good for their souls. Armstrong and Getty. 
Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. So I'm reading the New York Times book review on Saturday night. It's one of my favorite things to do. It's my tradition in my own little life. I don't cotton a book learning. Um, it's actually the fastest way to know something about books without actually having to read them is to read the review of the book. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a book out called You Bet Your Life. From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccination, the Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. And I don't think it's probably an accident that that book is coming out now, but it gets into uh, some of the reasons some of you won't get the vaccine. For instance, the polio vaccine that, when they rolled it out, was given people polio, which is one of the most tragic things that's ever happened. You get your kid vaccinated for polio, and they get polio. Oh, how awful would that be? Wow, did that happen much? Uh, it happened way too much, yeah. yeah it had li- it had live uh, polio. Uh, what do you call it? it Bacteria? Was pro- virus. It was, virus. It was just just it, enough to provoke yeah. an immune response, yeah, but theoretically. It was too much, and it didn't work all the time. And so, yeah, uh, lots of kids who got an, uh, uh, the shot for the polio vaccine ended up getting polio. So, and that's the excuse. Like when we had Mike Slater on... Um, from KFMB in, in San Diego, that was one of his examples of why he doesn't get the vaccine. But anyway, getting away from that, this is this is not about that. This is this is more entertaining than that. I'm, I'm sorry I even got off on that riff. It's a book about the history of medical innovation, and uh, let me read a little bit from it. I think you'll find this entertaining. For most of human history, anesthesia did not exist, which is horrifying to think about. Patients had to be forcibly restrained while their limbs were amputated and their cancers removed typically amid piercing screams and unbearable agony. Yeah, sounds about right. Things did not start to change until the 1840s, when a carnival barker named Gardner Colton charged people 25 cents to sniff laughing gas, also known as nitrous oxide, which made them (laughs) fall down in hysterics and then sleep for a few minutes. Wow. So he'd be standing in the car at 25 cents, which had to be in the 1840s, like a lot of money. Wait a minute. That's Yeah, that's a fair amount. Sniff the laughing gas, and people would do it, and they'd roll around on the floor, and people watching would find it very humorous and everything like that. Well, on December 10th, 1844, a dentist named Horace Wells attended the show. And soon after uh, inhaling the gas and making a fool of himself, he told a friend that a person could probably have a tooth extracted or a limb amputated and not feel any pain. Ding! So the dentist sought out the guy who was selling it just to make money, Immediately after the show, and the very next day, he became the very first person, this dentist, to use nitrous oxide as an anesthetic in the world. Wow. He asked a fellow dentist to extract one of his own teeth. Gee, that's commitment. And the procedure was painless. I'd yeah. say you're committed to proving something. If you take a little sniff of it and say, I'm going to sniff this grass, and then I want you to pull out one of my teeth to see if it hurts. Whoa, what now? <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't feel anything. Wow, man, but that, that predates the Civil War, and I know there was a lot of limbs on during the Civil War. I wish they could have gotten it to the troops. Over the following weeks, Wells used nitrous oxide on 15 of his patients. It worked every time. In, wow. in January 1845, he asked if he could demonstrate his method to specialists in a large amphitheater at Massachusetts General Hospital. The demonstration failed, however. Wells gave too little of the anesthetic to the patient, who woke up during the extraction in intense pain and screaming. (laughs) Whoops. Careful with that dosage, Doc. Members of the audience started shouting humbug, and Wells was disgraced. Oh, they humbugged him. Damn it. (laughs) So he he decided, you know, he's going to be the big, 
breakthrough Nobel Prize. Everybody's going to be talking about me and gather all these doctors and scientists in this big room. You go to yanking the tooth out of the guy, and he starts <laughs> screaming in pain. Well, that reminds me. I mean, it occasionally happened to Bill Gates or uh, or uh, uh, Steve Jobs. They come Musk. up with a big presentation. Oh, right, yeah. With the Cybertruck. Right, this window cannot be broken. <laughs> Smash. <laughs> so anyway, this guy was disgraced, and then like just a couple of weeks later, a different dentist did exactly the same thing with the right amount and gets all the credit for anesthesia. But it was this other dentist who just got the dose wrong that one time. The poor wow. guy wakes up screaming in front of the audience. Jesus. Oh, he's so bored. <laughs> Barbaric. Wow, that's hey, something, though. Co- said this wouldn't hurt. You son of a... <laughs> But it was a carnival gag. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Didn't it? Anyway, wow. a little further in the book, a little more uh, serious. Uh, heart transplants. Uh, when they started doing heart transplants, and it, it, the, the point of this is the history of medical innovations, obviously, you know, regularly starts pretty sketchy. But, you know, it's the only way we learn and get better at it. Trial and error, yeah. As recently as 1968... There were only 100 heart transplants performed in the entire world in 1968, and half of those patients died within a month. Wow. In light of that record failure, the number of heart transplants in the entire world dwindled to 16 in 1970 and 17 in 1971. It was all but abandoned as an idea. Now, after continuing to try and get better at it and coming up with the right drugs and techniques, doctors now perform about 23 heart transplants annually in the United States alone, and the average survival rate is 15 years. So wow. as recently as the early 70s, it was almost given up on. From half dead in a month to average 15 years, that's astonishing. Yeah, and uh, so you get better at it. But you just don't want to be on the early end of, uh, hey, I'm going to pull this tooth out, you won't even feel it. I, uh, <laughs> All right, I'm game. I'm going to try it on him. <laughs> Coming up, the hilarious history of enemas. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm going to run this tube up you and pump some water in you. No, All you're right. not. No, you're not. I'm game. Only you're going to do that before or after you pull my tooth painlessly. <laughs> Only if you can hold me down, you're doing that. Have I told my enema story? Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, I think you have. It was ages ago. Go ahead, all the fun go ahead and retell it. it. It's not a funny story. Jack's enema story. I don't know. It seems kind of funny to me now. Right after this. No, I, uh, it's short. Um, I'm in the hospital and I'm guessing I'm like 10 years old. I don't know. I'm a little kid. And, uh, I'm in the hospital and, uh, I'm by myself. And, uh, the nurse comes in and just tells me to roll over. And then she shoves this thing in me. And, oh you know, does what an enema is. And I had no idea what was going on or why or if this was a, or anything. And it was horrifying. Oh. Absolutely horrifying. And I don't know if you've ever had one of these, but it's it's not a pleasant experience before or after. It does the job. It cleans you out. But uh, I just I, I I've never forgotten that. I can still picture the room. I can still picture the person. You really ought to give somebody a heads up, no matter what yeah. their age. Yeah. I'm thinking Jeez, it was... That's just, that's, uh, that deserves a slapping or something. You know, I've had things like that happen even, you know, in, in more modern times where the person that's sent in to do something isn't, like, given any information or, or, or 
they don't they don't know that the person isn't expecting. I I had that happen just recently with my son. I'm like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? I'm here to do the blank. The what thou? No, we didn't discuss yeah. this with anybody. We don't have any idea. And if I hadn't been there, they would have the nurse would have just come in and you know we're doing this. We we thought I thought I was just told to come down here and do this. You know, it's my assumption as the nurse right. that you sure. have been discussing this with a doctor. Or they've laid the groundwork. So that's one of the reasons you need an advocate all the time, including now, uh, for that sort of stuff. But yeah, I had no idea what was going on. That was quite the shocking uh, development. Oosh. A surprise enema. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, when you've reserved for water skiers. Well, yeah, but if you did it to me now, I, I've heard of an enema. I know what it is. Right. Yes. Yeah, it'd still be kind of shocking. Like, why are we doing this? Did anybody just. And why it? have you not bought me dinner? <laughs> but I'd never even heard of it. I didn't know. You know sure. Right. Awful. But because of trying that on like a caveman thousands of years ago, or I don't know, a prospector in the 1850s or whatever. Oh, it seems uncomfortable. Here's what we ought to do. We got better at it over the years, and now it's something I enjoy every night. Um, well, so uh, so a carnival barker ends up introducing anesthesia. Is there anything else that goes on at carnivals that has uh, you know great medical potential? Maybe throwing ping pong balls at goldfish bowls <laughs> cures cancer. I don't know. <laughs> they need to research this. <laughs> what? Armstrong and Getty. 